If I may give some feedback, um, and this is interesting because the the whole closed source but publicly available versus open source, I mean, if we talk about, for example, my collaboration with Larry Yeager with regards to Polyworld and Opalape, it was based on the fact that both of our source codes were publicly accessible and um, not only publicly accessible but also uh, had kind of generations of development that was accessible, so I wasn't just taking a particular mm-hmm. version of uh, Polyworld, but I could go back and see, you know, what the versions three years ago were like before a particular PhD student had done some changes and these kind of things. So I guess my feedback with regards to Eva and specifically was I downloaded the uh, latest Windows version, which didn't work on my Vista machine. I went back two versions to a version which did work, but if the source had been open source, I would have got the source code and actually fixed the problem, which stopped it working <laughs> on, on, on the Vista machine, um, and then given you that feedback. So it's funny because the community really does exist almost in three different groups. There's the open source free download group, there's the closed source free download group, and you're, you know, you have luminaries such as Jeffrey Ventrella as well in this group, although I'm trying to move him into open source progressively. And then you have uh, closed source for sale or for commercial use uh, aspects mm-hmm. of the community as well. I mean, um, Steve Grant is a good example of this, um, although, again, I'm trying to move him into open source uh, open access. So the, the feedback I would give is that if you want people to uh, take the aspects of Evo Rand, which are most productive and, and potentially even do things like put them in Breve or Framsticks. The critical bit that is missing currently is the source code. What, what's your thinking with regards to maintaining closed source? And is there something that could move uh, Evo Rand into open source? Well, I knew this, sub- this, this subject would come anyway. <laughs> no, I, I uh, well, I think I have no strong objection in, uh, in giving the source code of, of everyone. Absolutely no, no objection. And uh, yeah, if there is an easy way to put the source code somewhere and share it among the community, maybe I can get some uh, <coughs> recommendation from you uh, of, this, of this conversation about how to do this, the, 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 most, uh, the easiest way. Well, no, I have no objection. I, I can, yeah? Sorry, currently the SourceForge, it's not particularly good. There's also Google. I mean, well, you you already use Google to get the uh, distribution out. So yeah. there's also there's also a source control uh, on Google as well as Google Source, the SourceForge, uh, for a number of years because I had problems with SourceForge um, associated with their money making models and things like that. I've just maintained the source code on the Noble Ape site, uh, of various versions that people could download. There are a number of ways of getting the source code out there, uh, both formal in the case of using SourceForge's subversion or CVS repositories or informal in terms of just having a downloaded zip file or downloadable zip file. Um, so really, I think the community is pretty agnostic in terms of how the source gets out. I know Larry uses um, SourceForge as well, and I've encouraged uh, Jeffrey Ventrella uh, to move his project onto SourceForge. Um, so, there are, no, there are, uh, sorry. Yeah, I, I'll do that. Well, at least I'll, I'll start by putting the, the source code in on the website just as a as a zip file. There, there's no problem. Uh, well, my, my main concern actually is more that uh, kind of 
is maybe a bit of a French way, I don't know, but I want to have a, <clears throat> a pretty good control over the efficiency of the code so that uh, the simulation stays and remains pretty fast uh, and whatever modification being done to it is pretty fast, but I guess uh, that's, that, that can be uh, uh, something that anybody who is modifying it uh, could, could maintain as well. And there's no... That, that was my main concern, actually, up to recently. Uh, and that is my main concern, is to maintain the, the, the speed of execution, basically. Pretty good, pretty, pretty fast. But uh, I'll start by putting the source code over on the, on the Everrun website, and I'll see if I can use uh, probably SourceForge to, to put the, the, the code there and maintain it in a slightly more professional way. <laughs> yeah. Terrific. Terrific. And I think certainly, I mean, that, that was the only, um, the only critical feedback I could give. I thought the documentation uh, was pretty good. And certainly I got a sense of the simulator having run it for many cycles. Yeah, you were correct. There is an underlying complexity behind it. Uh, but the source, for, the source code is the only additional thing that I think you'd need to give to the community in order for the community to get a, a better understanding of what was going on. So no, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the source code. Yeah, but seriously, I have no, I have no concern about commercial. I have no intention of doing any commercial use of it in the future. It's, it's purely for fun, purely as a, uh, and uh, any feedback that I can have from from the community will be will be welcome. And especially if there are, I mean, if, if there is some work being done in the past on how complexity of a group can be defined, measured, calculated. That, that, that's something I would be really interested in, actually. Terrific, terrific. Well, yeah. I, it, it's the right step putting, it, uh, putting the source code out because I think certainly with folks in the community like Eric Burton and a wide variety of other folks that, you know, live and breathe source code and these kind of things, I think the, uh, the metrics could probably be easily applied once the, the source code is available. You've talked a little bit about uh, Evo Rand as a, as a hobby, as a kind of artificial life hobbyist. What do you see the strengths are in the artificial life as a hobby model? Really, I haven't read anything that comes from the um, educational uh, environment, so I'm not too sure what is being done outside of this world. Uh, I know Larry Yeager is, uh, is working in a university, but uh, other than him, I'm not sure among the members of the community, I have the impression that the majority are hobbyists, really. And that's maybe specific to the Biota mailing list, but I have the impression that other than the hobbyist community, there's not much going on. I don't know. So I'm sitting in my library. I'm sitting in my library here, and I've got the Artificial Life Journal, which is the MIT Press publication yeah. that publishes quarterly in front of me. So maybe I have a visual representation that there's something else going on. But no, I mean that's, that's, <laughs> that's the beauty of the biota community is that you know, oftentimes if we didn't get academics, people like Mark Badeau and Larry and uh, people like Liz Swan, a wide variety of other academics. Well, Tom Ray is another good example. There is certainly a, an academic community as well. I think there's movements currently to try to integrate the hobbyist and academic communities because the academic community listens to BioLive as well. I mean, there are a number of people in the academic community that see a real strength in the kind of discussions that we uh, have here. And similarly, I think the um, 
do you, well, the academic community does its own thing. It moves in its own directions, and it, it, it's answerable to a, a, a wide variety of things that the hobbyist community doesn't. But what I liked is your description of taking from, well, not really even participating in the artificial life community, but kind of doing your own thing and then discovering that the community was, was running in parallel uh, because I think that's the that's the nature of, uh, of of the hobbyist fundamentally, and certainly, I mean, I hope that Tosco going online and um, communication and, and collaborative interest comes as well, because I'm sure that will re-energize aspects of your hobby. But what I uh, well, I don't know. I think uh, hobby probably just uh, well, I, I guess each and every hobbyist probably has its own goal. Is trying to look for something. <laughs> Uh, uh, some will try to uh, download and modify existing simulators. Uh, others will try to develop a, their own. Uh, but the, the, the academic uh, could, well, I, I guess, look at more fundament, fundamental aspects of, uh, of what we're doing in the life community. Like, for example, I think Larry, and, and I tried to get some inspiration from this, he, he wrote a number of papers on how to measure complexity, but I was, if I understood it well, more measurement of the complexity of the brain or the neural networks that form the, the creatures in, in Polyworld. Um, and uh, that's the kind of thing that I would expect from the, from the academy, is from the, the academics, uh, which is to uh, formalize things and uh, define criteria such as uh, how to measure complexity of an individual, complexity of a group, or things like this. would expect this, this, this kind of formalization to come from, from the uh, academic. Certainly. And if you recall uh, Stephen Guerin, who was on two podcasts uh, recently, the most, the most yeah. recent was the simulation science one. I mean, he, his team is very much about taking the uh, behavior of intelligent agents and then mapping that almost onto the kind of complexity model. So certainly I've received a lot of correspondence from people uh, such as yourself who are saying we have independent agent simulations. What method can we use to uh, model this complexity? And I think Stephen provides a, a very interesting insight that the same, the same uh, complexity analysis that is used by Larry Yeager and others with regards to neural networks or cognitive simulations or whatever you want to call it, can also be applied to uh, groups of agents uh, with, with very interesting results. I mean, I think what this returns to is Dick Gordon's comment that you can think of us as uh, solid human bodies or you can think of us as, you know, millions of bits of bacteria that all seem to operate together. And I think that metaphor is very useful in terms of understanding how um, how complexity can be used both with regards to individual agents and also vast numbers of agents. Well, if I understand well what Stephen is doing, he's using uh, agent-based modeling to try to help organizations improve their own process, if, if I understood clearly what, what he was mentioning. Is, it, is that correct? Certainly, but the, what he is doing in parallel to this, and this is this idea of simulation science, is that the tools that exist currently for describing uh, how these agents move and behave and interact are very poor um, for uh, mm. use in pure science. So there needs to be something that comes along with this that explains these interactions in more generalizable and kind of algorithmically um, reproducible or understandable forms. So really this is a, a kind of... Uh, 
uh, an intellectual movement that is creating almost a new kind of mathematics that explains um, from complex agent-based models um, how you can get out. And he uses the examples of thermodynamics, for example, um, in some of his discussion. But I think what will come through this is probably something that is maybe based in some regard in thermodynamics, but will probably be distinctly different. I mean, this is the curious thing through the uh, biotalyze from uh, Justin Lyon is that there are, um, there's a subset of the community that is very much interested in this uh, new mathematics in terms of uh, agent-based complexity and how this can all fit together. Um, and Stephen was a, a good example in terms of his descriptions of this, although, um, as you've noted, it's not, uh, it's not hard science yet. It's very much in the early phases. Yeah, and, and I guess maybe there's two approaches to today. There's, uh, there's maybe a measurement of complexity based on um, parameters that are uh, discrete and maybe measurement based on parameters that are continuous. Maybe there are two, two different criteria that could be uh, developed or defined either based on continuous or discrete uh, attributes that are being measured on the agents and... Uh, and aggregate it somehow over a group and to see yeah, and, 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 yeah, and measured well differences among the individuals of a group must be taken into account and not too sure but uh, I guess what I'm looking for is more something that would be based on discrete measurements or discrete attributes of, uh, of the individuals in a group and measure something over the evolution of the discrete attributes and how differences within the group can be accounted for as a measurement of the overall complexity of the group, something like this. I'm not too sure. <laughs> if one day I get uh, some idea of how to, 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 to do this, I will share it definitely. Certainly. But, uh, yeah. I mean, there are a number of trivial models to do with consumption and space and age. Uh, and certainly when I was having this discussion with Larry Yeager, um, which was Published in a, a book called Nature and Bioinformatics, actually, the idea, there, there are a number of there are a number of simple fundamentals that you can use to try and track these things. But as you say, it, it probably comes from a hybridization of a number of these, and also it's dependent. I mean, like, like all kinds of genetic survival. I mean, the, the genetic algorithm is based on the selection criteria fundamentally. So, um, you know, there, there are there are certain kind of arbitrary. Um, uh, metrics that can be created initially and whether or not they're meaningful in the long term uh, depends on probably a variety of factors. But uh, in terms of, I mean, you're talking to the community now, you've, you've listened to Bio to Live since it started and you've, uh, you've participated in the conversations mailing list. Aside from this complexity question, which you've certainly uh, clearly raised in uh, this evening's Bio to Live, what other kinds of questions do you have for the community? What, what would you like to see the community working on? That's a good question. I don't know. I, I remember another topic that I, I found quite interested for a while was, uh, I think there was an initi initiative from you. You, you were trying to uh, define some best practices and, uh, and I found it quite interesting and something that I would have been interested in participating to them as well. But the, the, what, what I think is that there are so many ways of approaching uh, simulation of artificial life being wet or hard or soft. Uh, it would be probably quite a, a difficult exercise to define best practices. So, no, I don't know. I, I think the, the variety of ideas 
that are being shared and, and tested inside the community is something that I find very interesting. I, I would mainly hope that, uh, that, that more ideas are being shared somehow. But I, I don't have any, uh, any other expectation other than really inspiration, trying, trying new, new approach to, to simulating artificial life. Uh, I, I really enjoy the variety of ideas, and, uh, and I would more expect new ideas to be raised among the community rather than any, anything else, really. I think it's a variety of thoughts, a variety of thoughts, a variety of inspiration among, among the community, which is, which is interesting and which I hope will, will remain uh, more than anything else. I think sharing of ideas, sharing of, uh, of experiences is what is the, the most interesting, really. And what you described with regards to best practices was the idea of the XML phenotype in communicating between simulations. Is this what you were talking about specifically? Well, that was more or less at the same time, but it could, it could cover other things. Uh, it could be uh, as well, I don't know, when, when you do a representation, when, when you use a, a, a DNA to represent information as a string of uh, bits, and uh, you apply to this uh, mutation uh, that can, um, there could be, for example, uh, best practices to make sure that uh, the effect of your mutation would not systematically uh, modifi modify drastically the values or the, the information that's being encoded in your DNA. Uh, this is, for example, an area where I think there could be some best practices and, and, and this is something that could be defined or suggested in the community. That, that's, that's an example, maybe quite trivial, but uh, that's Certainly. an example. But even that is a contentious point within the community. And I think yeah, what is, that's interesting. <laughs> well, what is interesting in my own experiences with Noble Ape, and this is, this is ironic because it is with two MDs, two, uh, two different perspectives with regards to medicine um, in terms of the feedback that they've given to Noble Ape. One relates to um, a, a doctor who deals primarily with children and mm -hmm. his experiences there is that there is probably far greater mutation than we give attribution to. This came a couple of uh, bite lies ago actually um, in a discussion by William Buckley. I mean what happens when children are born is that they're fundamentally classified and any movement away from the norm is, is uh, ideally corrected as close to birth as possible. So our own perception with regards to mutation, just as humans, is limited. So on one side, um, one doctor said, you've got to increase the mutation. On the other side, another doctor said the mutation needs to be decreased. It needs to be a smaller amount of mutation in order to accurately represent you know, humanoid-like creatures. So I think even, and this is outside the community, this is with um, effectively with scientists that, uh, <laughs> so... These kind of discussions, I think, um, I mean, my own view is that uh, the, the level of mutation should be a, a parameter which is set by the user or through some kind of negotiation if multiple simulations are, are participating. But uh, even that is a, you know, a contentious topic in the real world, let alone within the artificial life community. Uh, but no, it's a fascinating discussion. Well, I, I I do like generally the idea that, uh, uh, that the level of mutation should be something that is uh, not being imposed by the simulator, or that is something that should be 
uh, evolving I mean, should, should be defined through through um, how do I say uh, that it should be encoded inside the DNA and it should be uh, through a natural selection that uh, it becomes either high or, or low. I, I've seen, for example, when I test uh, something I call cataclysm, when I test a phenomenon that would kill a number of creatures uh, randomly, you see that automatically the mutation rate goes higher because they need the creatures need to evolve a lot faster to be able to adapt to the fact that the environment is under high pressure. So this is something that you can see in Evoran immediately. As long as you turn on this cataclysm thing, you see that the mutation rate goes up within a few generations because the environment is putting a lot more pressure on the creatures and you see the, the mutation rate evolving. But then, uh, there again, the, I think the way you represent encode in the binary form uh, the various I don't know, the, the, the size or the, the energy of a creature that it has at, at birth. Um, a slight change to one bit due to mutation should not drastically affect your descendant. It should have a small impact or things like this, or no impact sometimes. And this kind of representation of the data is something where I feel that could be some best practice uh, defined, even maybe with theoretical background to it, but uh, I don't know whether that exists. But I think that's an area where it could, there could be some, some best practice being defined. Uh, yeah, I don't know when I'm clear, but uh, that, that's the idea. No, it is, it is fascinating because, I mean, if you, if you look at uh, catastrophes as they've affected um, various species in the real world, I mean, particularly the, the narrative of kind of human evolution, uh, and you know the dinosaurs and things like this. I mean the yes. the result of catastrophes. Does it really increase the 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 need for genetics? I don't know if that's uh, true or not. I think that's a question out to the community. I can see in one sense that what you're creating um, is the potential for the to be more. But if you look at things like re- real catastrophes, like drought, uh, these kind of things, famine, the um, Really, what you're finding there is um, a very selected subset of the genetics, or the, the ones that are allowed to continue through those catastrophes, if at all. But it's a very interesting simulation problem, and I think thank you very much for uh, for phrasing that out to the community. In terms of other uh, best practices, aside from just mutation, I mean, certainly the descriptions that I gave moving towards the um, XML phenotype related to yeah. concepts like energy, concepts like space and time. I mean, what you would think would be relatively easy uh, things to standardize. Um, and even they caused a great degree of contention, particularly because the number of simulators had never really considered how big their <laughs> the simulated entities were in, in relation to, to other simulated entities. Is, is this part of your idea of best practices as well? Well, yes. Why, why not? Indeed, I think it should. It's probably possible to to define a fairly uh, flexible uh, uh, the, the the XML uh, definition a definition of an XML that should be fairly flexible that encompass various ways of uh, representing and processing even the DNA or or the phenotypes or the genotypes. I, I think there is uh, ways of defining it in, in a fairly flexible way and 
and I would be interested in, in participating in, in this, bringing some, some, well, sharing some ideas on, on what would be um, interesting to, to code inside a XML, uh, and and probably I don't know. I think it might be possible even for parts of an XML definition to be used by a given simulator. Uh, um, without considering another part, how, how could I say that? If I take Evoran, for example, I could for it quite easily add inside the, the DNA a representation of genes which are exactly the uh, phenotype of um, know, transit, for example, I don't know. That's something that would be quite easy to do uh, for me, and I would be interested in, in doing things like this. Certainly, certainly. I think also implicitly when we were discussing the XML phenotype, there was the idea, as you say, for uh, various components that could be used by all simulators, but also uh, almost a kind of opt-in strategy where some simulators would choose to uh, simulate the components from other simulators, but it wasn't necessarily required. So I think that really came implicitly with the idea of the XML phenotype was what we were trying to do was take a variety of different simulators and work out what the what the shared subset was with the view that obviously um, not every simulator would take every uh, bit of information from every other simulation, but there had to be a, a shared subset group in some way. Well, I, I, I don't know, but uh, I think if, if a number of people were to uh, try to define in XML, what actually is part of their own representation of, of a creature, uh, and we get five or ten of those representations together, it might be possible to extract from there some common parts, which with little work from a number of people could be matching fairly well uh, among, among a few, few simulators. Um, I don't know, that could be an interesting exercise. But that's the aim, I think, of, of BioTheory fundamentally. Uh, and certainly, and as I, start, I started the show by talking about some of the feedback that I've received already from the BioTheory community, uh, but there's a, there's a strong discussion associated with creating uh, a site, uh, possibly part of BioTheory, possibly a, a separate site, uh, to do this kind of collaboration, almost akin to... SourceForge, but also certainly with periodic updates and uh, ability for simulators to to compare notes in a in a very real setting. So I think the momentum from the community is is certainly moving in that direction. It will be wonderful to have uh, you and Evo Rand uh, as part of that discussion. But where where is the the situation today with BioTech? Is there a, a separate mailing list, or is there a there is a separate mailing list. I think the discussion that uh, is being had currently um, uh, between Bruce Damer, Gerald de Jong, uh, I've had some correspondence with Scott Schaefer. We were the we were the primary people involved with that initially. Is that we need to either create a site through Biota or create a separate site that will allow for that collaboration easily, and rather than going through. Um, a formalized mailing list or something, or a wiki. I mean, the problem is that the uh, mechanisms that we've had through Biota previously have not been ideally suited for these kind of collaborations. They've been additional technologies which give us something like an ability to 
edit each other's XML phenotype through wikis, but it's the wrong kind of collaborative interface um, and similarly mailing lists and things like this. So what we're looking at currently, there are a number of um, social site packages which are ideally suited for this kind of um, cross-collaborative development. Uh, and certainly the correspondence I'll include you in that uh, has been with regards to which of these sites or which of these um, mm -hmm. particular platforms would be ideally suited for what we want to do. Um, but I think the, the motivation is there. What will happen is that we'll, um, it will be either a separate project or a biota project or there will be some connection. But the discussion currently is how do we represent this in a visual way? And, I mean, obviously with the development that a number of people in the community are doing currently, take Gerald Young with Darwin at Home, for example. Yeah. The stuff that he has done in the past six months has been very different than what he has done in the six months prior to then. Um, the developments are moving in different directions, so tracking it through a static site or even a wiki is difficult currently. There needs to be a dynamic way that we can we can collaborate easily. Uh, and that's the, the problem that we're kind of discussing offline currently with the view that probably in a March time frame, um, we will have found a, a package and an environment. And um, so it's very much part of the current discussion. It's not going on through mailing lists that's being done between individuals currently. Um, but that's only because the way the, the mailing lists operate currently. So there is formally a Biota Eve mailing list, but the traffic through that hasn't been particularly good, um, and it really relates to individual participants' collaboration currently. Mm -hmm. in, in, which way, in which way could I, could I, could I participate, do you think? Well, uh, merely by asking, I'll include <laughs> you in the discussion. Um, and this goes out to the community as well. Um, the discussion currently has just been about basic nuts and bolts, um, how these things all fit together in terms of the existing biota infrastructure, whether it needs to be something separate. Obviously, um, if you appreciate Peter Newman, who was on the last podcast, is doing all the EvoGrid development, he also maintains yeah. the biota site. So my personal view is Peter is... Um, very, you know, it's very conscientious with regards to the stuff that he does with Biota, but I don't want, um, I don't want his time commitments with regards to the Evo Grid to, you know, mean that it is an either-or choice that he has to make. I think there needs to be an independent uh, site, um, possibly within Biota, um, that would allow this kind of collaboration, which isn't taking Peter's time. I mean, Peter ultimately, with what he's doing with the Evo Grid, will probably be a contributor to whatever's created, um, but it's a yeah, it's it's that kind of level of complexity and discussion currently. Well, um, uh, if I was to to try to uh, represent in XML or define an XML uh, schema, I think that's the that's the name that would represent uh, what I have inside Everon. Would that would it be of a help or certainly that's something and, that I could do? Yeah, if if you see example. already on I think on the Biota Wiki, a few of us, um, Gerald uh, Scott Schaefer and I, in particular. Uh, developed uh, phenotypes for each of our, which are fundamentally schema, um, just single instance representation, but with some discussion. And then through that, there was a kind of collaborative discussion. Uh, Scott's work has gone in a different direction. Obviously, Gerald's work has gone in a different direction. I still maintain the XML phenotype as part of Noble but I, I do my own development independently too. So certainly, by all means, create create a schema uh, or just an in, in individual instance with some discussion 
uh, of what you'd like to see from either end and, and put it into the mix currently. What I'm talking about is really more formalization yes. of what we've done informally currently. Yes, yes, which would come up in something around March, you think? Yeah, I think yeah. it will just be either a part of the biocide. I'm not really sure how this actually works internally. We're still working that out. Or like, you know, just a URL within Biota or it'll be a separate site. Or it may even be a separate test site initially that then goes back into Biota. But this is the <laughs> this is the project planning nature of it as opposed to the actual practicality. For what you need to do currently, um, go to the Biota Wiki, uh, get a user account on the Biota Wiki uh, and uh, start putting in um, your XML phenotype into the wiki, and, and we'll take it from there. That's the way that it's done currently. So we can we can work sure. on that after uh, after the recording and uh, get you get you involved in the wiki initially. Sure, looking forward to it and to what my well to a slightly more formalized organization around March, I guess. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Havan, it's been wonderful to chat with you this evening, and I've, I've got to say, once you've been formally invited once on Biota Live, you can come back whenever you want. <laughs> <laughs> so please feel free to, I know the times and, uh, you know, things are, are varying, but I mean, please feel free to uh, come back on a future Biota Live, and maybe when we formalize this thing in March and things are moving in that direction, maybe you could participate in some kind of group discussion show that we had uh, relating to that as well. Sure. Thank you very much. It's a lot easier for me now being in Mexico than, than before. <laughs> Certainly. And That's one final before. note, you, you are the origin of Biota Live Light, uh, and it represents about 10 to 15% of the community that get their uh, Biota Live updates through the through the Light feed. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that, that in itself has been a great inspiration. For people that are listening, and the feedback that I get is that they're all over the world, but they're in relatively remote places with poor connections. You were once there in some regard. I, give, give inspiration to these people in terms of their participation in the biota community. You mean when, when I was in Saudi Arabia? Well, actually, that's, that, that's when I was in Saudi Arabia that I started to, to join the... Biota life, uh, well, the, the, the Biota mailing list, and uh, indeed the type of network internet connection I have over there was uh, hardly better than uh, the modem over telephone line. I had uh, what, 128 kilobits per second, and that was when nobody else was using it. That is very late at night, but in a day you could go down to 30 or 60 kilobits per second, and I think that was the origin of our conversation and your suggestion of, uh, uh, well, of a Biota Life uh, Lite, which is in a slightly smaller size file, which I could download in reasonable time. Um, well, I, d I don't know. I think uh, uh, at that time also I tried to to, to join um, was it the the course from uh, Nick Gordon. Mm -hmm on uh, Second Life, and that was something totally impossible. So really, in those conditions, the only thing you can do is uh, email, hardly do uh, do browsing, but the, the only communication you get with the rest of the world is, is email. Even uh, um, video, I mean, even Skype sometimes was very difficult to use. So email is really the only means of communication that remains. And, and in there, even then, I mean, in Saudi Arabia, I was uh, among, among the people who had uh, a fairly good 
uh, internet connection. Yeah, I don't know. W was that your question? I think there are some members of the, the community that are in parts of the world that are a lot more uh, difficult. Uh, I think there were some people who were in, in Iraq or things like this. Yeah. Certainly. Parts of the world are even more difficult. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think that was certainly my own experience in Australia. Even before I left Australia, all I had was dial-up connection. And certainly I maintain contact with people in Australia that still get, uh, you know, get by as life light through dial-up connection. And I think the important thing is that you don't, you don't really need powerful computers or powerful network connections in order to develop artificial life as a hobbyist. And what, what people find is that through email and through, you know, setting up various projects, they're, they're able to actually interact with the community. And that's certainly something that I feel is part of my mandate and my editorial duties with Biota is to make sure that, uh, well, you do need an internet connection. I'm, I'm yet to Although I, I could potentially burn CDs for people if they wanted to deliver it in that way, but do, you know the, the the nature of the communication doesn't have to be with the fastest possible computers or the highest possible bandwidth. In fact, the a lot of the insights that have come through the community have come from people in almost complete isolation. Um, <laughs> Maybe the the result is that you you have more time to to spend on on your own passion, less time communicating in a way probably. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, indeed, I, I started this uh, this uh, website uh, well on on Google. I started it when I was in Saudi Arabia, and then it was, uh, it was not a problem. I mean, obviously, from time to time, you get disconnected, and then you just get back to it uh, at night when there's <laughs> more people, less people using the, the bandwidth available. But uh, yeah, it, it wasn't a problem to actually set up a website in those conditions. No, it's just uh, live communication that is difficult. Over audio or video. Well, hello. it's been wonderful to, to talk to you this evening. Like I said, don't be a stranger. You're posting on the Biota Conversations mailing list. And yeah, around this March time frame, let's get together again and talk about collaboration. Sure. Thank you very much, Tom. I'll talk to you soon. Take Have care. Have a good evening. You too. Yes.